Access to controlled drugs as medicinal tools has always been fraught with moral and ethical challenges. There are also extraordinary regulatory delays and obstacles to making therapeutics available. Regrettably, those who need treatments most often pay the steepest price. Seeking permission to access, procure, and use psychedelics to better treat people with serious conditions is governed by Section 56 of the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act and the Special Access Program, SAP. On January 5, 2022, the food and drug regulations governing the SAP were amended to allow healthcare practitioners to request access to restricted drugs which were previously prohibited. Health Canada revised its special access program for drugs, a guidance document for industry and practitioners to reflect these amendments. While the change appeared to be a quantum leap from a legal perspective, the facts on the ground tell a different story. Access for the potentially thousands of Canadians who may benefit from these breakthrough drugs and therapies has been problematic. This podcast is about the patients, physicians, legal eagles, and organizations that are doing battle to write a system that is simply not working. In this episode of the Psilocybin Chronicles, Tales from the Legal Frontier, I speak with Paul Lewin, a veteran constitutional lawyer who over 20 years ago played a key role in successfully challenging the constitutionality of the laws prohibiting access to marijuana for medicinal use. He, along with a dedicated team of lawyers, is now leading a similar challenge, claiming the prohibition of psilocybin for medicinal purposes violates Section 7 of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. As Paul succinctly puts it, the beating heart of this case are Canadians with terrible health issues seeking access to safe and effective treatment. Welcome to the podcast, Paul. Oh, thanks for having me. Uh, I'd like to start by having you share with our audience your journey in the legal profession, where you started, and what got you to the kind of work that you do today. Well, uh, so I started uh, about 29 years ago, um, and I actually started a ri- in the very beginning in divorce law, which was horrible, and then I was just doing straight up criminal law. And it was around 1999, um, I was a pretty green criminal lawyer, and a friend of mine who was a cannabis activist had um, in- said, what are you doing? You're a criminal lawyer. This is like a special gift. I use it to try and bring about some positive change in society. He was a cannabis activist, and so he roped me into cannabis activism. And, you know, it's been a thing that it's, probably been good for my practice. I've met a lot of friends through that, but maybe more than anything, this feeling that there's something bigger about my cases than just winning or losing has really been inspiring for me in my work. And so I had it with cannabis. And now that I'm working with psychedelics, I feel the same way that that there's, there's a higher calling to this. It's an important societal changes. It's not just about winning or losing a case. So uh, essentially, you can't do anything with psychedelics. And um, uh, now now cannabis is regulated, so it's a little different now. But cannabis, it was the same thing before legalization. You can't do anything. So you can't possess it. You can't sell it. You can't give it or share it. You can't grow it. You can't export or import it. Um, It's subject to certain very limited medical exemptions. So... 
Yeah, it's really just the default is you can't do anything with it, but there's a couple of very narrow ways in which you could get an exemption for medical or religious use. The government gives these out with an eyedropper. Um, so, but th so that's it. And that's kind of the way it was with cannabis. Cannabis medical access got better over time. Um, and psychedelics were just kind of starting out uh, on this legal pushback. Can you describe in layman's terms what legislation, what rules, what regulations are applicable here? Sure. So, uh, so it's the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act, which prohibits everything. There is a, a section in the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act, Section 56, in which the minister can exempt a person or a class of persons from some or all of the act. Also relevant is the um, special access program. So that's another way in which you could get medical access to uh, psilocybin. And so there's a, a process that you have to go through. A doctor actually applies on your behalf. And then the government are the ones who have actually authorized it at the end of the day. So in terms of the laws that matter, it's the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act that says you can't do anything and then there's these two other narrow exemptions, which you could get medical access through. Where does the special access program fit into all this? Well, the special access program or the SAP is the, is the, is the means in which the government's currently using to uh, permit medical access. So Section 56s are pretty rare these days with psilocybin. So if you wanted medical access, you'd have to do it through the SAP. The SAP um, puts a great, so the doctor applies for the patient and there's a great burden on the doctor. The doctor has to set all the science behind this. Um, the doctor is liable for the entire process. So the doctor ju isn't just authorizing it, but they're liable for your use, which means the doctor has to know a therapist that the doctor trusts. If the patient's in another part of the country, the doctor, Say, well, in all likelihood, say, you got to use my therapist. I'm liable. I'm on the hook for this thing. So you better use my therapist. So, and then the, the doctor just asks. The doctor doesn't approve it. The doctor just says, could this patient please have access? And the government will uh, often will write back and want, say, want further details about the patient and the drugs they've tried. That's one of the big things with the special access program is you have to have tried all sorts of invasive therapies and pharmaceuticals that are nasty and or barely available, and you have to justify why you're not using these, and that shouldn't be uh, that that shouldn't be how access to therapy works. It shouldn't be a treatment of last resort. So, but that's the SAP, and there's other issues with the SAP. But uh, so it's essentially you you send a giant pile of documents to the government, and uh, you try and tell them everything you know, and uh, they ask you a whole bunch of questions. And then they may or may not grant it. Let me ask you this in, in this context, uh, Paul. The medical professional that works with a patient, their patient, does their regular medical malpractice insurance cover this kind of work? Um, uh, you know, I, uh, to be totally frank, I, I, I'm not sure. I doubt it. I, you know, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Fair enough, because it, it seems to me they, they're taking a big risk here, you know, because they believe in it. So, you know, that, that, that I guess is a fairly, uh, uh, you know, important consideration for them. 
But let me go back a little in history here. With the cannabis constitutional challenge, how did you get involved in that one? And you've answered that. Uh, what were the seminal moments in that litigation? And what was the end result? Uh, you mean in cannabis litigation over the years? The, well, the, without a doubt, the, bi the big case was Parker. So before Parker, Parker was um, decided in the late 90s in the lower court decision. Um, and uh, they said that Terry Parker had terrible epilepsy and uh, cannabis eased his seizures. And there was no way for him to get any access. And the government lost at trial, and then it went to the Ontario Court of Appeal. And the Ontario Court of Appeal on July 31, 2000, uh, found that the law was unconstitutional. Now, the, and the government had pointed to Section 56, and they said, you know, you can get access through Section 56, so everything's fine. But the record was deficient in terms of the Section 56s that had been granted, the Court of Appeal also said that this unfettered access in which unfettered discretion is, um, isn't a way to cure a law. Now, other cases have addressed that, but that was the big case. And the government said, uh, the Ontario Court of Appeal, sorry, said you got to the government, you got one year to fix this law, July 31, 2000. And so on July 31, 2001, exactly one year later, the MMAR came into place. That was the first regulatory system for cannabis. So no longer were you begging the government to permit you access. And a, a few people did get access, but it was, no one was in too clear on the process, but now it changed. And now you would go to your doctor and you, it was between you and your doctor as to whether you should get access. And that was, that was a huge moment for cannabis, medical cannabis. Um, and I mean, in the early days, very few doctors knew much about cannabis, but quickly Doctors started filling that void. They started learning more about cannabis and um, it became easier for people to get it. And it was, it was really a game changer in, uh, in the history of medical cannabis, Parker in 2001. Um, there have been, uh, since then, in terms of the really big cases, well, HITSIG in 2003, there was no way that you could grow it yourself. Um, there's no way you could get access. And the government had actually said, well, just go to the black market. And in HITSIG, the court of Ontario court of appeal said, you can't do that. Um, you've got to, there's got to way, be a way that people can grow it themselves if they need to. And if they don't know how to grow a means to get it. Uh, so HITSIG was big, um, in, um, uh, in 2015, in the Smith decision at the Supreme Court of Canada, uh, extracts became available. So before you had to smoke it, you couldn't take out the good stuff and just consume that. A, a great line from a friend was, he said, it's like you order a pizza, but it's only legal if you eat the box. So uh, in, in effect, you got to eat it. You got to consume, you got to smoke that, the plant matter that doesn't do any good as well as consume the cannabinoids. So... Um, and, um, uh, so that's, uh, that was huge. And, uh, of course, Allard, which is probably was, uh, I'd say Parker and Allard are probably the two biggest cases. And that's where they tried to take away personal growing and, um, the government would not let them take away personal growing. And they say, that's a right for medical users. And I wonder if that's going to be a fight for psilocybin 
either in this case or at some point on the road in which the government will be, I'm sure, is going to want to restrict personal access. And some patients, uh, there's good reasons why you might want to control the psilocybin that you consume. You might want to grow it yourself. Let's fast forward um, to today. For a variety of when reasons. and how did you become involved in the current constitutional challenge as it relates to uh, psilocybin? Uh, so I got involved originally with Bruce Tobin. Um, so he had, Bruce had, what was it, about five years ago. So he is a uh, therapist, a PhD therapist who um, was treating patients, was, uh, saw the science, believed that um, psilocybin-assisted therapy was amazing. He had been on this horrible road in which he was getting the runaround Anyway, I helped him draft a Section 56 application, and we prepared ourselves for court. Just uh, weeks before we were about to go to court, the uh, government granted the first four uh, Section 56s for psilocybin. Thomas Hartle was one of those, and that was pretty big. No one had ever gotten legal access to psilocybin before. That was, uh, I believe, August 4 of 2000, if I'm correct. And so that was huge. We, we stopped the case. We said, we're not going ahead. We're going, we think this is going to be, we can work with the government. So uh, that's what kind of brought me into it. And since then, I've been involved in a variety of different ways, including trying to lobby the government. And I helped draft up regulations, draft regulations that were built on the cannabis regulations, essentially a similar, a very similar model. And we submitted those to the government and, you know, people tried and tried to talk to the government and say, you know, we're going to ask nicely, we're going to smile, we're going to have a draft regulation. So here's a do-it-yourself kit, how to make psilocybin legal. And we are going to be so polite and helpful and provide them with all the science they need. And nothing ever worked. And so I am a little cynical about them. Those are some of the things Can my early involvement with psilocybin legal work. an overview of the legal issues involved in this particular litigation? Um, you know, where is it taking place? Where is it at right now? And where do you hope it goes? So we are in, um, we are in federal court. It is, uh, we're in the discovery process. We're receiving documents from the government um, and we're planning out our experts. We have a pretty good idea of our experts. Um, so, um, and uh, there's three main issues in the case. So the three main issues, number issue number one is doctor as gatekeeper access. And so what we're saying is that this, um, this is necessary. It's necessary for a whole bunch of reasons that the doctor, is, a patient's doctor is best placed to uh, determine the proper course of treatment for a patient, not a government bureaucrat. The patient's doctor is much closer to the patient and the patient's needs. The patient's doctor knows the patient's medical history, the severity of the health issues, the treatments that have been tried, and perhaps most importantly, the patient's doctor knows the suffering the patient has endured. Doctors are the ideal gatekeepers because they have a commitment, a legal obligation to um, put the patient's well-being first. They have to always act to the benefit of the patient and promote the good of the patient. And I think, I think any right thinking person would say the ideal gatekeeper must be wholly committed to the patient's best interest. To make anybody else the gatekeeper 
would be to discount the best interest of the patient. Doctors are also the ideal gatekeepers because such an approach is more consistent with the doctrine of informed consent, which establishes the patient's right to make meaningful decisions about medical treatment. Informed consent is rooted in the concepts of an individual's right to bodily integrity and respect for patient autonomy. This is, I think, a medical ethics issue. The informed consent is a basic accepted legal principle that, and this is from the Supreme Court of Canada, every human being of adult years and of sound mind has the right to determine what shall be done with his or her own body. Doctors are ideal gatekeepers also because they're trained in and mandated to provide patient-centered care. And patient-centered care is care that's in which the patient's interests are put first, in which the patient is given, has the right to have an input into how their treatment should proceed. Uh, The patient's needs, wants, perspectives, and individual experiences are supposed to matter more with patient-centered care. And and providing this enhanced, in fact, they describe it as a partnership under patient-centered care between the patient and physician. And that's only going to happen when the do- when it's doctor is gatekeeper. You're not going to have that when you send it off to the government and the government sends you and whether they, it's more than just whether they agree as well. It's also whether they just say, okay, this is how much you're using and this is when you're using it. You can use three doses of this amount and that's it. And you microdose? No, you can't microdose. We're not allowing you to do that. You want a larger dose, we're not allowing you to do that. You want natural, we're not allowing you to do that. We're not going to let you grow your own. Um, you you are going to do it exactly as we do it. And if you haven't tried all the health issue things that um, all these other nasty treatments, and we're not even going to let you have all access. And it's very interesting that under the Section 56 exemption, as well as under the SAP, it, both of them provide that the minister may either issue a letter of authorization or grant an exemption. The minister may do it. So no matter you meet whatever test you can, the the minister still could just for reasons unrelated to your health, say no. So, and and I'll tell you this too, that, and doctor, I'm talking a lot about doctor's gatekeeper because this is really the big game changing uh, section. And, you know, we talked about cannabis earlier and what happened when the MMAR came in after Parker. Well, that's going to happen here too, that what we want is you go to see your doctor, you talk about psilocybin, you talk about your history, you talk about what you're going through. And then if you and your doctor agree together, you walk out with a piece of paper that lets you access psilocybin and go to the therapist of your choice. There's no government, the government is gonna get out of the healthcare business. The, the government is gonna get out of the personal doctoring business. And now it's just between you and your doctor. That's how it should work in the future. And I think it'll explode then. And there's many fantastic uses for it. And uh, I don't believe anybody with addiction has ever got an uh, SAP. And, you know, some would say, well, you know, the evidence, the science on addiction and psilocybin, it's mostly anecdotal. If you're an opioid addict and you're wondering if you're going to die of a fentanyl overdose any day, you are like living a zombie life and you've lost or you're, you're no longer a parent or a spouse. You're no longer doing your job and you just sit in a daze all day. Your life is a catastrophe and you're wondering if you're going to die any day uh, from poisoning or a heart attack. 
I compare that situation to you come to a bridge and if I'm healthy, if I'm, if I'm just walking along on a stroll on a Sunday afternoon and I see a bridge, I might look into say, does that bridge look safe? Was it properly constructed? But if I'm being chased by a bear, I'm running over that bridge and I'm not making any inquiries about that. I'm, get, I'm running over it and that guy, that opioid addict or the alcoholic or the cocaine addict or even someone addicted to tobacco, which kills untold thousands and thousands. This safe substance might fix me. I'm trying that safe substance and that that's how it should be. And that's really, that's what it is under the charter. So I'm pretty passionate about doctors, gatekeeper. There are Before two other issues, which those, I, I won't Paul, go on about MMAR, far. Just for our listeners that are not familiar. The MMAR is the um, Marijuana Medical Access Regulations. So that was the very first version of medical access. All right, they changed the name a few times over the years. Up. Yeah, so the, the, the second one is uh, therapist access to psilocybin for training purposes. So, uh, so a therapist, and this seems like such common sense, but uh, like this, uh, taking psilocybin is a unique experience. And a therapist has to understand what the patient's going through. They, it, it's a matter, it, it's a matter of efficacy and safety for the patient. So this is not about the therapist. It's about the patient. Uh, so, and some uh, therapists have had access uh, and then they cut off the tap, turned off the tap at some point. And so uh, we're seeking that. There are a bunch of judicial reviews that are uh, going to be argued by one of the lawyers on our legal team, Nicholas Pope, um, in which there, I think there's 99 of them, 99 therapists who tried to get access and were refused. So a federal court will rule on that. Uh, we're seeking that the, we're asking that this be changed, the law be changed, and that there be a way for therapists to get access and not some mysterious section 56 where you don't know what to submit and what they'll agree to. And uh, and you know, by the way, under section 56, they can only authorize the you the possession. They don't authorize growing and they haven't and they can't authorize selling or sharing. So if you get a section 56, you're a therapist, um, unless the psilocybin falls out of the sky and lands in your hands um, or you're a mycologist and you trust your judgment to pick the mushrooms wild. But like you can easily pick po poison mushrooms if you don't know what you're doing. So it, there really is no way to get access so and you can't a therapist can't get access under the special access program that's for medical use it's not for training so um so that's number two and then the third one is we want patient access to natural psilocybin mushrooms or synthetic psilocybin um uh we it should be a patient choice some people like the fact that synthetic is highly regulated um some people might have had experiences with natural mushrooms in the past and, and, and with mushrooms, everybody knows with psychedelic set and setting matter. And so if you've, if you're familiar with one thing and that's going to make you feel more at ease, then uh, I think it's very reasonable to let patients be able to use it. And as well, you can, it's, they're very easy to grow. Um, so, I mean, why, why do patients have to purchase them from companies? Some Did might the want government to, give but you some a may choose not to. Why they refused the therapist application? Was there any standard that they went by, or was it not 
uh, articulated. The, the refusal, the Section 56 refusals that we've received um, are, they're very boilerplate in which they'll make a statement that psilocybin is not an approved drug. In other words, it doesn't have a drug identification number and that it's a prohibited drug. Like it's just really, it's very boilerplate. There's no substance to it. It's, they didn't. So to answer your question, and no, so they this didn't is obviously really part of the litigation. Answer, and that I guess is what Nicholas Pope is arguing in federal court as well. Yes, he's on this team, but he is also doing the judicial reviews on those doctor refusals. So, um, I mean, if they lose all 99 of them, that's that's a game changer. Um, we'll have to see what happens with that. So, and I think it's already did, been argued. This is an application on behalf of all of the 99 therapists. It's not, they don't each have to deal with their own case. So my next question, Paul, is does the Correct. work and approach you're taking now was it informed and you hope that it parallels and is similar to the cannabis constitutional challenge? Oh yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, um, it's like the cannabis wars, um, and they were a pretty litigious group, the cannabis, uh, the cannabis old timers. Um, they, uh, we, uh, there were a lot of, I mentioned four cases, but there were many, many fights and, um, the, so the law is well-developed uh, as a result of cannabis litigation. So it's not, we don't really have to, we have another psychoactive substance that you can grow yourself that's pre been prohibited under kind of the drug war foolishness. Um, and so it's kind of uh, very similar and there's lots of evidence that it's medicinal and it's safe. So yeah, it's very much like the cannabis cases and uh, really, I, I could boil down the case law into one sentence. And this is like the challenge is under Section 7 of the Charter, which is this long wordy section. Um, but the, the, what it really boils down to is the government has to, they don't have to permit, but they can't put barriers that prevent reasonable access. So that's what patients get. So if a patient wants something that's dog, the government does not have to fund it. They don't have to make it cheap. Uh, the government doesn't have to go above and beyond. It doesn't have to be great access, just reasonable access. And this goes to the barriers. And the barriers are in that CDSA that I mentioned in the beginning. That that That's the barrier to everything. That's where all the problems flow from, is that you have a law saying you can't do anything. You can't even help someone do anything. If it, um, even aiding and abetting is gets you in trouble. So uh, yeah, the cannabis cases absolutely inform this, and that's really the question. It's not so much a legal question, really. It's a it's a factual question. So is, let me ask you a couple of questions. Are patients getting reasonable respect, access? Uh, Paul, the action in federal court is an application that you filed. Yes. Oh, it's sorry. A no, of claim. no, my apologies. What was it's the specific relief that you have requested? So the specific relief is um, we seek to strike down the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act, uh, the sections in there that prevent, that prohibit possession, sharing, selling, growing. We also ask that uh, the exemptions that are available be found to be not providing constitutional access. So we don't strike down the, the problem is the overall prohibition that you can't do anything with it. 
the exemptions are inadequate, but they're not, their inadequacy is the problem, but the, at the heart of it is this broad prohibition preventing everything. And then we also uh, seek this um, 24-1 relief. So this is, so if we're successful, then the judge would declare the law, the laws in the CDSA unconstitutional and declare them to be of no force and effect. But then the, um, they would, the government would ask that that declaration be suspended. So they'd ask to suspend the declaration of invalidity because they'd say, well, there'd be chaos. If there was no law prohibiting psilocybin, then people would be growing it and sharing it all over the place. <laughs> that would be chaos. Uh, we can't have that. They would get that declaration. They get that suspension. And it would be probably suspended for sufficient time for the government to craft a uh, constitutional medical regulation. So they'd say, all right, then you got a year to come up with some law that works. And then in the meantime, during that law year, we also asked for um, exemptions from the law for the, the patients in the case and other patients who qualify, and companies that produce it, and companies that grow it. And so that everybody can, uh, so there's suppliers for the patients, and other patients can step forward. So so what, like, what we're asking for, the patients are, there's no request for money in here. Like we're not, they're not asking for money from the government. They're just, they just, they are truly in here only to make the law better. That you've named. Uh, well, so the defendant is Her Majesty the Queen, or now the King, and then there's uh, eight plaintiffs, eight these eight uh, brave plaintiffs, uh, seven and patients, how does and one Health healthcare Canada professional. Play into this? So Health Canada, actually, in the in the case itself, they are not that relevant. I mean, they are and they're not. So they would give evidence. So we're not fighting against. Health Canada, uh, we're fighting against uh, the federal government, so it'd be probably Department of Justice lawyers who are we, we are actually dealing with. Um, Health Canada would be a witness on this. So uh, with absolute certainty, there's uh, going to be a Health Canada witness. So someone who understands a lot about the regime and they put forward statistics um, and information about the system. It seems to me that ultimately this is going to be a political decision. Do you feel that way? Because to me, Health Canada basically is uh, an organization that works at the behest of the Canadian government to implement health policy when it comes to, you know, drugs, treatment and so forth. But it is the politicians, it is our elected officials that are going to have to, you know, open up their eyes and, and identify the need and, and the research and the science and make that decision. Is, is that correct? I, you know, I don't think, and maybe it's just because I'm a lawyer, I'm sure it's a reflection of my job. And if you spoke to a lobbyist, they'd say something different or a consultant. But um, I, I think it's it will be a legal decision at the end of the day. Um, now, how they fix it, so the court doesn't fix it. The, the government fixes it. The court just strikes down. Um, so the fix is a very political decision. But um, whether it's constitutional or not, and maybe it's just me and some might disagree and say I'm being naive, but I think that it really is about the, I think uh, you're being it's about the evidentiary record that because we put forward. The, the other solution that I see is if the government reads all the great research that's been coming out of like hugely reputable institutions and says, well, this is wrong, we can do better, and we shouldn't have to be taken to federal court to be forced to do so. 
but I guess I'm being naive when I say that. Yeah, you know, sometimes I almost feel like governments like it when they have constitutional, they're forced by constitutional challenges to do something reasonable with drugs. They, they like the idea of saying, oh, well, you know, there was this court case, so we had to do it, um, rather than them making a decision that kind Possible of Possible deniability, the that's what they say in the movies, um, Paul. <laughs> Um, let me switch gears here for a sec. <laughs> These types of cases, I mean, they're epic battles and they're complex, labor intensive, take a long time to unwind through the uh, courts. Who are the other legal eagles helping you with this? And how is this litigation being funded? All right. Well, the other legal eagles are, um, so we have uh, David Wood, who is the... Um, Superstar psychedelics. Uh, I had the pleasure of meeting him in yes. uh, Calgary. Yes. You are correct. He's a superstar. Yeah, no, he's amazing. He is amazing, and uh, we're blessed to have him on the team. And he provides something that a lot on the team don't have. So he he's um, he's not just a patent lawyer; he's a PhD in biochemistry, I believe. So. Um, uh, then we also have Nicholas Pope, who I mentioned. So he's sort of like a federal court uh, pro that on the team. And he's also doing lots of judicial reviews on this issue. So he's been, uh, he's really carried a lot of the load. And then we have uh, Emily Amir Khani. She is a uh, civil lawyer and corporate commercial lawyer in Calgary. Um, she uh, actually played a very big role in making this statement of claim a beautiful work of art. I'm, I'm kind of a longtime criminal lawyer, and so we don't craft such beautiful things that uh, Emily created here. So very skilled civil lawyer. We've got the Jack Lloyd, who I uh, do a lot of work with. Jack's a, done a ton of uh, cannabis constitutional challenges, doing lots of work in the psychedelic area. So, um, And then we have Harrison Jordan, who is a... Uh, does uh, cannabis and psychedelics regulatory work and uh, brings a lot to the table and has carried a lot of the load. So that's our amazing team. And uh, well, the funding, Theracil's been uh, helping us with the funding. Oh yeah, so Theracil, they're, uh, they've done all sorts of cutting edge things. They were the ones who really were responsible for those first four Section 56s. Um, that was really Bruce Tobin's organization. Actually, I mentioned Bruce Tobin. He created Theracil. Um, Spencer Hawkswell is the one who runs it. He is like a lot of companies. They're just they're just trying to. They're worried about shareholders and making millions. But uh, Theracil is really moving the ball forward, maybe more than anybody in my view. So they're amazing. They've done some fundraising. Uh, it's been a little, it's been kind of dry the last few months. And I'll tell you this, if anybody's listening to this and they're thinking of funding it, the benefits for the patients are obvious, but if you're an industry person, if this changes, if we get doctors gatekeeper, this thing's going to explode. Like suddenly lots and lots of people are going to need access to psilocybin. This is the key that will unlock this industry and it will explode. It will burst forth. It's a wonderful, miraculous, super safe drug that should be widely available. And probably the two things that it's best for of all is depression and anxiety. And you know, it cures people not by changing some our chemistry in our brains or our brain works differently. 
it changes us by people have these amazing spiritual experiences in which they see the world differently and they feel more connected to their fellow man, more connected to the earth around them and the plant life and the all the life around them and less ego. It's less about, am I the best lawyer? Am I, am I the most handsome guy or the best basketball player or the best this or that? And you feel more connected. And it, that funny enough, that makes people less depressed. And that takes away anxiety. It's, it, it, makes, uh, it takes away depression and anxiety by making us better humans. I couldn't think of a more wondrous drug. So for industry, this thing is, and uh, depression and anxiety is a terrible problem in Canada, as it is everywhere in the world. Um, so if you're in industry, this thing is the key that will unlock the gates to a vibrant, me, uh, wholesome, robust industry. Let me with a industry. couple of questions. Yeah. Uh, litigation is notoriously slow especially in the scope and scale that, that you're dealing with, Paul. Realistically, what, what kind of timelines are we looking at? Well, uh, realistically, we're easily looking at a year and a half from now, easily. Part of it is the money, too, that like we're... We're having like we're having to do this on a shoestring, and so we can't well, drive what this would it look forward like? let me, the way let me we'd like stop to drive you there it for forward. A second. Let, let's say that you got a big check tomorrow, whatever that amount is. How can you speed it up? How would that? What would that look like? Well, instead of lawyers kind of doing this in in the, when they can between other cases, instead of having to rely heavily on very cheap labor from students. Um, lawyers could push other cases aside and saying, I'm getting paid on this. We're going to, we're moving this thing forward now. And it's not like anyone makes a conscious choice not to move it forward at any given time, but like it needs a lot of attention from the lawyers. We can't be doing the bare minimum. We got to do way more than the bare minimum. And just like my practice, like there's people who have paid me money to do things. I got to do those things first. And if, if we have money, then this will become one of those priorities for all the lawyers. No one's giving up on it and no one's um, bailing on it, but it's just easy to push something aside when and there's no money there. I think no it's fair to say that the work that's been done to date has done, been done either at reduced rates or as a work of passion. Yes. Oh, you got that right. You got that right. There were, like some of the lawyers have received not a penny. Um, like the amazing David Wood has received not a penny. Emily Amirkani has received not a penny. Um, those who have been paid have been paid at very, very modest rates. Um, I, I got some money in the beginning. I haven't received a, a dollar in probably 10 months. I've spent an astronomical amount of time on the case. Um, so yeah, no, it's, you're getting a lot of value. And you know what? Like if we got a big check, we wouldn't say, all right, now's the time to, crank up our rates, we'd still have very modest rates. Like we we would make that money last. Like you would get a lot of legal action for your dollar uh, from this team. And it's fully transparent too. Anybody wants records of how we're spending uh, our money? In your view, Paul, we're, uh, what would be, be the ideal outcome in this case that will best serve Canadians? The ideal outcome would be we win on that big doctor's gatekeeper and that, as I've said, that would change everything. So then it's it's a more simple matter. It's not complex. There isn't a, a giant, there isn't research. You just go see your doctor. Where can our listeners follow the case as it, it unwinds its way through the courts? 
Well, I do believe Theracil has information on their website. I've got the pleadings on my website, which is lewinandsegarra.ca. I will add it to the show notes so people can just click. You'll just share it with me. Okay, very good. Uh, and uh, the, and I th- I'm pretty sure the Therosil website has information um, about the Thank you so much for your time sick. today. So. Uh, kudos to you, your team that are you know, doing this as a work of passion to help a lot of Canadians, ordinary folks that are suffering from you know, ailments that this, this plan can actually cure. Uh, and I know it's shocking to me, having learned uh, and been educated by you and others, and anybody that's going to listen to this podcast, that... In 2023, we still don't have that available to Canadians when we know it's efficacious, when we know it's safe, and we know it's so cost-effective, especially in the current healthcare environment. But again, thank you so much for your time, Paul, and good luck. Thank you very much, Mike.